to Slovo, a podcast of the ATA Slavic Languages Division. I am Maria Guzenko. This year, many of us had to adjust our daily routines and work arrangements. The ATA Annual Conference will look different this year, too. For the first time in its existence, the conference will be held online on October 21st through the 24th. I hope to catch up with many of our listeners virtually. The Slavic Languages Division will host its traditional Grice Lecture. This year's presenter is Ellen Elias Bursak, the current president of the American Literary Translators Association. An interview with Ellen was published in the latest issue of Slav File, the SLD newsletter. In this episode, I would like to highlight some of the other presenters and give our listeners an idea of what to expect. Check out the complete conference schedule and session descriptions on the conference website at ata61.org. In the first part of this episode, I will talk to two literary translators, Evgeny Terekin and Shelley Fairweather-Vega. In the second part, we will hear from Nora Seligman-Favorov, Veronica Demichelis, and Eugenia Tietz-Sokolskaya whose presentations all tackle negotiating differences in translation. Now on with the show. And now I'm going to present today's speakers. So Yevgeny Terekin is an ATA-certified translator, interpreter, and editor. He was born and raised in the city of Omsk, Russia. In 1995, he graduated from Omsk State Pedagogical University with a master's degree in English and German. Professional translator, writer, and blogger, he has been living for the past four years in Franswood, Texas. He has translated and edited over 100 books, including works of Martin Luther, John Calvin, Charles Spurgeon, Owen Barfield, and C.S. Lewis. He specializes in literary, marketing, IT, healthcare, and spirituality. Shelley Fairweather Vega is an ATA-certified Russian-to-English translator and also translates from Uzbek into English. While she focuses on literary translation from Russia and Central Asia, she also translates journalism, games, and legal texts. She is president of the Northwest Translators and Interpreters Society, an ATA chapter, and the founder of the Northwest Literary Translators. Her translations of fiction and poetry have been edited and published by seven publishing houses in four countries. So, of course, we know we have the ATA annual conference coming up and it's going to be virtual this year. So most of my questions are going to be about that. But before we get into that, could you please briefly tell us how you got into translation and interpreting, what you've been working on professionally lately, Shelley? Sure. Um, I've been a full-time freelancer for let's see, 10 years now, I think almost, um, translating uh, mostly Russian and also Uzbek, as you mentioned before. I started uh, freelance translating part-time in, in graduate school where I was studying uh, Russian, East European, and Central Asian studies. I never knew I was going to be a translator. I thought it would be a diplomat or a historian or something like that. Um, but I sort of fell in love with translating and, and stuck with it and made it my full-time job. Perfect, thank you. Evgeny, what about you? Yes, I, I started my career on, when I was in a, uh, my language school. I was in the third year, 
And uh, so my first assignment was to interpret for a, a group of American missionaries who came to my hometown. And so that's how it all started. About after a while, I um, was approached by some of these people to translate a, like a study guide. And uh, after I did it, I realized, wow, this is so exciting. I could do it for life. So uh, it must have been 94. And, and then I um, started marketing myself uh, in this particular niche. And that's how it all started. So, Evgeny, let's use this as a segue. What exactly will you be talking about at, uh, at the ATA annual conference? And how did you get started in the area that you will be talking about? Yes. Well, when I thought about what I could speak on, um, one uh, topic that came up to me was how I used my mistakes to get better and to improve uh, uh, in the areas, you know, that, that were particularly related to what I do. Because, you know, uh, I've been in this business for 27 years and there, there's like a list of uh, mistakes uh, that I have made. And uh, when I look back at them, I see that focusing on those mistakes and they're mostly, I mean, the mistakes that, that I'm talking about mostly come from feedback that I get either from the editor uh, or from clients, and I kind of have a list of those just for my own benefit. So um, I'm going to talk about some of those major things and how focusing on them helped me to kind of revolutionize, kind of uh, improve my work and bring it up to a certain standard and just keep, keep constantly keep improving what I'm doing, which, of course, translates into more clients, more business, and... Uh, so, and, and just general satisfaction. Yeah, and I think this is also related to what Shelley will be talking about, you know, because as far as I understand, your presentation will be about editing. So what exactly will you be talking about? That's right, yeah. It, um, my presentation, I think, is a nice match with Evgeny's. So my presentation is called Getting Edited to Get Ahead in Literary Translation. Um, most of my work these days is with novels and poetry, and when you publish those things to the translator, there's a whole separate process after the translation process, which is the editing process, which can linger and go on forever and is uh, fraught with difficulty. Um, but um, obviously it's a necessary process as well. And I think it's one that translators, when they first start getting published, aren't prepared to navigate very well, this editing process. So my presentation um, is about two aspects of that. First. Um, how translated works get edited, kind of the process and the people involved, and then also how it feels to get your translated work edited. So the emotional um, aspect of all of this. Um, it's, uh, you know, kind of emotionally risky putting your work out there for all that feedback and those corrections and those suggestions. Um, sometimes when you're talking with the editor, this is your first chance to explain your translation choices to somebody, to see if they hold up, to see if what you have done works for a reader. Um, um, and it's all, of course, for the purpose of getting a better book in the end. You want to have a better book and you also want to use this editing process um, to build relationships. So I'll talk about the relationship between the editor and the translator and the author, if it's a living author, um, and how you can strengthen those relationships through the editing process as well. Very nice. And I guess this is a question for both of you. So who is the target audience for your session and what will people learn from your presentation? Perhaps Evgeny would like to start. 
Yes. Uh, well, I would like to share my experience for people who might be just starting their career or might be like um, already been working in that area for a while. And um, uh, so that they can see that basically this uh, feedback that you get both from your editors and your clients uh, is like a key. It's almost like this secret weapon that's been given to you by, by life. And if you are uh, able to focus on correcting those things that, uh, you know, people constantly, I mean, uh, chances are you're going to be hearing the same thing about your performance over and over again from different people. With, this is how it happened with me. And so if I ignore this and somehow I you know, sweep it under the rug or something, I'm not improving. But if I'm actually able to you know, sit down, focus and say, okay, let's just be thorough with this. What is it that uh, they're trying to say? Like the, my first editor to whom I am indebted, you know, uh, he's, a, he's a really, really great man. Uh, but he was really strict with me. He didn't let me get away with anything. So he'd be sending me, you know, the text that I translated full of red, you know, in track changes. And uh, I'd be going, I was shocked. I mean, I'd be going back and forth, uh, like communicating with him. And I'd be asking, what's wrong with this? And he'd be saying uh, pretty much the same thing again and again. Like, we don't speak like this in Russian. We just don't say things like this. And, and then I would ask him, well, how do we say this? And he said, well, maybe this is a better option. This is a, you can just read up on this. And he would recommend this author and this author. And so I realized over time, okay, I need to work on my collocations. You know, like that thing where you put words together in a certain way. And this really improves the readability and things like that. So... Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's just in short. I see. Yeah, this sounds very helpful. Um, Shelley, how about you? What, who should attend your presentation and what will they learn from it? Well, my presentation is aimed at any translators who are getting their work edited, either for the first time or people who have been doing this for a long time and continue to find it a very frustrating process. Um, and to help people navigate this process, I've um, I'll be presenting sort of a typology of edits, like a field guide to types of edits you might see from your editors, um, and also offer some concrete um, advice about how to think about these things, how to respond when you get that Word document completely marked up in red and blue tracked changes. How do you sort out those suggestions and decide the best, most constructive way to respond to each of them? Um, you know, and one of the goals is so you don't have the experience that Yevgeny um, just shared with us, that you're getting the same kind of feedback over and over again, and you're kind of hitting a wall each time. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? What do I do? What do I do? Um, so to help people, you know, like learn from these suggestions and learn how to respond constructively to them. Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess my last question is, when you were starting out in your respective fields, what is something you wish someone had told you about the subject matter or about this text type um, early on? So Shelley? Well, when it comes to editing, I wish, um, I wish I had known earlier what an important part of the process it is. Um, it depends on the, the press and the, the type of book. Sometimes the edits that come back from the publishing house is just a, you know, a short list of, of typos or questions. And sometimes it's, you know, multiple suggestions on every page um, and a multiple step process with multiple editors. So 
one thing I hope translators will take away from my presentation is that you need to prepare for this phase of the work, devote the time to it and be ready to kind of attack it, you know, with energy and attention um, in order to come up with a good finished product. Sure. What about you, Evgeny? Well, that's a good question. Um, there's one thing I was actually told by my editor, you know, back then in the 90s. He actually told me that uh, the reason you're getting, you know, your text back with so much in red is, is actually because I believe that you have what it takes. That's why I'm sp spending so much time correcting you. Uh, but the tendency is just to think, okay, it's all wrong. And it means that, okay, how, how do I handle this? Do I have what it takes? But it's actually the other way around. And I'm, you know, I'm really happy that this man actually told me, okay, here's what you need to do, the very specific things you need to work on. And this just, so basically the message is, if you have something that you need to work on, it means you are on the right track. You just need to focus on this exact thing that needs to be done. Okay. I don't know if that makes any sense. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> this is really encouraging advice for many of our listeners, I'm sure. So Shelley Fairweather Vega, Evgeny Terekin will both be presenting at the upcoming ATA annual conference. Catch them both there, and uh, more information is available on the ATA website. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you so much, Maria. Thank you, Maria. It was nice talking to you both. Next, we'll hear from Nora Seligman-Favorov, Veronica Demichelis, and Eugenia Tietz-Sikolskaya. Okay, so let me introduce today's guests. Nora Seligman-Favorov is a Russian-to-English translator specializing in Russian literature and history. Her recent translations include the 1863 novel City Folk and Country Folk by Sofia Khwashinska, Russian Library, 2017, which was recognized by the American Association of Teachers of Slavic and Eastern European Languages as Best Literary Translation into English for 2018. Her translation of Stalin, New Biography of a Dictator by Alek Hlevnyuk, Yale, 2015, was selected as Pushkin House UK's Best Russian Book and Translation for 2016. She currently serves as Associate Editor of Slav File Newsletter of the American Translators Association's Slavic Languages Division. A Russian history buff, she has been translating articles about Russian history for Russian Life magazine since 2005 and serves as the magazine's translation editor. A native of New York City, she currently lives in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Veronica Demichelis is a native Russian currently based in Houston, Texas. Her credentials include an MA in Linguistics and Cultural Communication, an MBA in Human Resources Management, and an Advanced Certificate in Translation and Interpretation. She is a freelance ATA-certified English to Russian translator specializing in localization, corporate communication, human resources, and social responsibility. Veronica teaches localization and audiovisual translation in the Translation and Interpretation Program at Houston Community College. She serves as chair of the ATA Professional Development Committee and is a member of the External Partnership Standing Committee of International Federation of Translators, FIT. 
Eugenia Titsukolska is a Russian and French to English legal and financial translator. She received her master's in translation from Kent State University and has been freelancing full-time ever since. She is also the current administrator of the Slavic Languages Division. So first of all, before we get into the presentations that you will be giving at the upcoming ATA conference, could you please briefly tell our listeners how you got into this field of translation and interpreting? What field you usually work in and anything else you would like to add about your professional biography? So Nora, if you would like to start. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for doing this and all the other podcasts you've been doing. They're wonderful. So like a lot of other uh, translators and interpreters, I became a translator because I developed this really profound interest in another country, in my case, Russia, um, in the culture and the literature and the language and the fact of Russia's more homogenous culture is compared with U.S. melting pot heterogeneity. I grew up in New York City and I was just fascinated to meet so many people who in so many ways were so similar. Um, so I tried, I started to look around for a career where I could continue to study these fascinating people in this fascinating language. And as in the course of that exploration, I started playing around with translation I just translated um, passages from my favorite literary works, mainly Eugene Onegin and Master Margarita, and I just thought it was so much fun. So I, um, so I proclaimed myself a translator and started promoting myself and at first accepted jobs that 30 years down the road I'm still not qualified for, but I did um, hire various local emigres to help me, so I think they turned out okay, but I realized I needed more education. So I got a master's in, in uh, Russian literature, and shortly after that, went to my first ATA conference, where I made enough connections that I was actually able to get enough work to be a full-time translator. That's how I got into the field. Wonderful. Veronica, what about you? Yeah, I was um, extremely interested in languages since I was a child. Um, I studied English, French, and German at school. So naturally, I chose to study linguistics um, at the university. My uh, parents wanted me to maybe pick journalism or law, but I insisted on linguistics. Um, and I started translating and interpreting before I became a freelancer and before I moved to the US. I worked um, in oil and gas in Russia and Norway for many years, um, and I was involved in a lot of communication between cultures, um, so to speak, um, concerning staff, various stakeholders, partners, and general public. And since I had a linguistics degree, uh, which really didn't match all the other sort of hard skills in the company, um, I was naturally drawn to translation and interpreting and always jumped at the chance to help our in-house team translate documents or interpret during meetings when it was needed. And uh, when my family moved to Houston, uh, Texas, I decided to take a leap quit my corporate job and put my linguistics degree to proper use. Uh, that's when I completed a local two-year program in translation and interpreting and started working as a freelance translator. So now I um, specialize in localization of websites, software, uh, mobile apps, and marketing and corporate communication. Great. Thank you. Eugenia, what about you? Uh, I also have had an interest in languages 
for most of my life. I moved to the U.S. when I was four, so I grew up speaking both Russian and English natively, and that provided a lot of opportunities to translate and interpret to some extent. Um, just between my home culture and you know the the English speaking culture at school, uh, I knew I was going to work in languages in some way. For a while, I was going to be a French teacher, and then discovered that teaching just was not for me. Um, and around the same time, I took, uh, I took a translation workshop course that's offered at Swarthmore College, where I got my undergrad. Our professor invited Marion Schwartz, um, the distinguished Russian literary translator, uh, to come speak. And, and in general, I just got a window into this industry that exists that uh, turns out you can be a translator and, you know, make money and have that be your full-time career which was a bit eye-opening for me. Um, and after that, I got my master's in translation at Kent State, um, which really set me on the path to actually treating translation as a business. Um, now I specialize in legal and financial uh, texts, and I'll get into why I ended up there. Um, and also, complete tangent, uh, I also specialize in anything that requires deciphering old Russian handwriting um, and just his more historical texts as well. Um, that's just because has happened sort of by accident and it's a lot of fun. Wow, very interesting. Well, since I'm talking to you, Eugenia, we might as well transition to your presentation for ATA 61. So what will you be talking about and how did you get started in that area? Uh, yeah, I'll be talking about legal translation as it happens. Uh, my session is specifically focused on contract language and the differences and similarities in Russian and English. It's focusing specifically on um, categories of language. So how contracts do what they do. I got into legal because of the Kent State master's program. We had several uh, practice courses, one of which was legal, commercial, diplomatic, and I was just hooked. Um, I don't really know why, uh, but that was my, my first introduction to uh, legal language and um, our professor, uh, Dr. Brian Baer, was, um, you know, he, he spoke authoritatively on how we should translate. He was very clear of here's, you know, here's how you use shall and here's how you use other language. And that really appealed to me. It felt like there was a, you know, there was sort of a rhyme and reason to it. And then as I started working more in the area and doing more contract translation, I discovered that it's actually not that clear cut. And I mean, there are definitely competing ideas on how you should use legal language and what's the best way to draft a contract just in one language. And then from there, how to take a source text and, um, you know, put it into the appropriate language for the legal system you're translating for. So that's, um, I kind of wanted to share that knowledge because it took me a long time to get to a place where I felt at least confident, more confident than I was before, of uh, how to translate a lot of these concepts. So I'll, I'll get into to that a little bit more in detail later, but that's the general idea that I'll be talking about. That's fascinating, and that reminds me of a prior guest we had here on this podcast, Paul Arturo, who kind of talked a little bit about the different legal systems and all of that good stuff. Anyway, uh, the other two presentations also have to do with negotiating difference between two systems. So, Veronica, could you speak about yours a little bit? Sure. Yeah, uh, gladly. 
I will be talking about corporate social responsibility and what it usually means when companies or stakeholders in the post-Soviet space um, mean when they talk about it. I worked in social responsibility uh, for many years during my corporate career, and I was helping um, our company evaluate um, how our operations might inadvertently affect people in a negative way and how we could prevent those negative impacts. And I also helped identify opportunities for positive change, you know, maybe ways to increase employment locally, help develop local suppliers, train future professionals, and so on. So in the course of this work, um, I worked with colleagues and partners all over the world. Um, and uh, I was particularly interested in, in uh, working and talking about these issues with um, our partners and colleagues in Russia, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Ukraine. Um, and that's what helped me understand their perspective and see how it's different from um, the perspective of um, the company, um, because we had to follow um, many international standards and wanted to apply certain international best practice. And in my experience, social responsibility often means slightly, um, if not entirely, different things to people and companies that grew up in the Soviet states um, than to companies that come from other parts of the world. There is a gap in understanding that it's not just about charity. It's not just about giving away money to possibly great projects. And that um, other very important topics are an essential part of um, social responsibility. And these are topics that, um, as we all know, can be challenging to talk about in Russia and post-Soviet states, such as anti-corruption, human rights, um, social issues, ethical issues, and labor standards. And they can be challenging to translate and interpret about too. This is really a topical issue. Yeah. And last but not least, I'm going to transition to Nora, whose presentation also has to do with differences, but perhaps not today's differences, but those of the 19th century. So Nora, could you talk a little bit about your presentation? Right. Of course, once you're dealing with um, something more than a century ago, those differences get compounded because, uh, well, of course, there's tremendous differences even just within one culture between the present and 150 years earlier. Um, yeah, so to get back a little bit to my path into translation, while I was in graduate school, I... Um, wanted to write my master's thesis about a novel that needed to be translated. And so I spent a year um, squinting at microfiche and read all of the 19th century uh, female authors in Russia who were quite popular in their day, but kind of got written out of the canon um, in the Soviet period and were never republished. And of everything I read, I the thing that I fell most deeply in love with was this novel I'll be talking about mostly in my presentation. I'll have examples from other works as well. Um, City Folk and Country Folk, Goretsky Derevensky by Sofia Kwasinskaya. So um, I translated this novel immediately after getting my master's degree back in 1997. And almost got a contract to publish it, but then got too busy to make the revisions and didn't publish it. And I am so glad because several million words translated later, I had just learned so much and um, it came out being a much better work. So in the course of those 20 years of working on this not very long novel off and on, uh, I took some really deep dives into the cultural context and the history and even some of the, uh, uh, the novel 
it deals somewhat with, um, since it's 1863, that's right after the liberation of the serfs. And um, there were a lot of kind of uh, land reform issues that landowners were dealing with. And that's kind of in the background of the novel. So there's, if you're trying to translate a literary text and make it entertaining and smooth, you don't want to suddenly insert, you know, a 2000 word footnote explaining the niceties of land reform. So I struggled a lot with that and um, hope I came up with optimal solutions, but I'm going to walk people through that process and um, give my, now is my chance to make my long scholarly arguments why this term is better than that term that I didn't want to do in, in footnotes while people were entertaining this rather amusing story. Uh, yeah, so I have just um, chosen a bunch of examples and I, I really look forward to discussing them with other professional translators and um, kind of taking a deep dive into the decisions you have to make when you're struggling to find the right balance between making a text enjoyable and entertaining, but helping a foreign audience understand the context and the background. Oh yeah, this is so important. Uh, as someone who's pretty new to literary translation, I can attest to the importance of these decisions and you know how vexing they can be. But anyway, that brings me to my next question. So perhaps uh, I'll continue talking to Nora. So it's really two questions. Who is the target audience for your session? And what will people learn from your presentation? Okay, well, I think the trickiest um, part of that question you just asked me that I've been thinking about as I prepare the presentation is whether or not people who don't know Russian um, or who don't know any Slavic languages, how much they would get out of the talk. And I am designing it so that although some things might kind of go over their head, that I, I think this talk will be suitable for anybody dealing with literary translation. Um, although uh, I, I, I will have handouts with the Russian that is being discussed, but I will try not to bring too much Russian into the actual talk. Um, so, you know, we all, we all are language nerds. So I'm hoping that um, someone uh, like uh, Eugenia and Veronica would also enjoy it, even though they're not working in literary translation, at least not primarily, um, that they would enjoy it too, because we all just love to talk about words. But primarily it's for people fighting the same fight I'm fighting, just trying to find that right balance in, in uh, literary translation. Um, and certainly anybody interested in Russian history, because there will be a lot of that just um, inevitably coming into these terminological choices I made. Um, and what people will come away with, <laughs> I hope, is they will come to understand, those who are a bit greener than I am, those who are where I was 10, 20 years ago, how hard literary translation is and how much work it takes. This particular novel I translated, I had, oh, I probably had 10 different people read my translation. And about five of them knew Russian and to varying degrees compared my translation with the original. And so many mistakes were found along the way. 
And that's not because I don't know my Russian history and don't know my translation. It's just hard. And when I read other people's uh, literary translations, they do tend to have a lot of mistakes as well. Even some of the big names, well, especially some of the big names. But um, so it's, you know, there's obvious economic reasons why we don't want to work, you know, thousands of hours on something we're going to get paid $6,000 for. But that's kind of what it takes. So it's a really difficult situation literary translators are in. And that's why most of them are college professors or have other day jobs. But I feel, although even in page proofs, we found a couple more mistakes, I really feel like we got them all <laughs> after that 20 year project of working on this particular novel. Eugenia, perhaps I can ask you the same question. So who is your session aimed at and what will they take away from your presentation? My session should be uh, interesting to anyone who works into English primarily um, with contracts in particular um, and somewhat to people who work in other legal fields because they often overlap. People who will get the most out of it work from Russian um, because about half of the presentation is about the same categories in Russian, but it should be broadly uh, relevant to to anyone translating into English. Do you have a focus on the specific legal system of a particular country or do you find that there's enough of an overlap between a lot of them? So um, so I'm focusing on, I, I had to kind of aggressively narrow the scope because there's obviously so much to potentially talk about. Um, so I will specifically be looking at um, Kenneth Adams's uh, categories of contract language. Um, and since he writes for drafters in the US, um, it's going to be focused on the US tradition and the US tradition and sort of current practice. And I, I won't be talking about, uh, or I will only me briefly mention these sort of alternatives to, to his recommendations and to uh, the, the differences, potential differences in sort of UK legal English and, and other English speaking countries. Because my focus is, uh, it's for people to have a framework for thinking about what contracts do, because that isn't nearly as dependent on the specific legal system. Um, people in every country around the world at some point want to put a deal in writing, and they want people to promise to do something, and you know they have certain linguistic means for achieving that. And so what? So what I'll be looking at is how they do that in English, and then how they do that in Russian, where it has not been systematized the way that Adams has done for English, and then sort of sum it up with what, well, what does that mean for translating? And that's why I won't be talking as much about, you know, civil law versus common law, or um, the specific differences in the legal framework in the US and Russia. Um, and that's also why I think it will be relevant to people not working in Russian, um, because, like I said, it's, it's a human thing to want to make a deal and put it in writing. Great. Thank you. Uh, so, Veronica, what about you? Who is your target audience and what will they learn? 
So my session is aimed at translators and interpreters who work on projects that involve any of the terminology or any of the elements that go into social responsibility. For example, ethics, anti-corruption, transparency, human rights, labor issues, um, social or ethical issues, um, social investments, um, or colleagues who may want to start specializing in that field, um, or even those who already do and want to get a different perspective on it. And um, I plan to give the audience an overview of all the topics that form um, the concept of corporate social responsibility, because as I mentioned, most people tend to think, oh, it's about, uh, you know, doing good deeds and, and donating money to charity and, and uh, supporting all these great projects. Um, so I'll talk about what it means at the level of international standards, uh, guidelines, and best practice. Um, and that is a level that international companies typically work at when they talk about corporate social responsibility. And I will then talk about how many companies uh, and stakeholders in the post-Soviet states look at um, CSR and what it means to them. Um, and I will share some examples of uh, misunderstandings, challenges, and communication on these topics, as well as some success stories um, and what role translation and interpreting played there. And you know what, I've seen <laughs> many similar similar challenges um, in other countries and other parts of the world uh, where I worked uh, with this uh, in Asia and in Africa. So I think that it will be useful to people who don't work with Russian but want to learn more about what social responsibility is and how to translate on this topic and overcome these challenges in communication. Great. And I guess my last question um, for all three of you is, what do you wish someone had told you about the subject area that you will be talking about when you were just starting out? So perhaps going back to Nora. I saw that question and thought about it. And I, there really isn't that much, just what I was saying, that it is very hard and it takes a very long time. But if somebody back then had told me how little money can be made with literary translation, I might not have chosen it as a goal. Yeah, so I will let the others focus on that question. I really don't have a lot to say about that particular one. Fair enough. So what about you, Eugenia? Um, I wish that, well, so I was told, as I mentioned, um, I was told quite a bit about the subject area by Dr. Baer. Um, and I kind of wish somebody had told me that his views on it, while, I mean, it's not like he misled us, um, and, and definitely not you know, intentionally, I just think that he was not giving us the full picture necessarily. And so I wish that we had been pointed to resources for, you know, what is good writing in legal English um, and, you know, what authorities are out there. I wish somebody had mentioned the name Brian Garner um, specifically for the legal field. We heard about him in editing, but it wasn't until I graduated that I found out he edits Black's Law Dictionary and he has books about legal writing that somebody had mentioned Kenneth Adams. Uh, I only heard about him in a webinar several years later, right? And, um, and that there are competing opinions about how to use language in, in contracts and in other uh, forms of legal writing and where to look for, for those authorities. And the fact that, as it turns out, not all legal English is great writing. Um, so the general approach that we were taught at Kent of, you know, look for parallel texts and kind of use them as your model for how to write your translation 
well, your parallel text might be a contract written in English that is full of archaisms and just poor drafting and, you know, lawyers wanting to sound smart. And also it's a different, you know, different legal system, different tradition. So I, at the beginning, I definitely felt like I was flying blind somewhat. So I wish I'd had some, some pointers on where to look for, you know, authoritative sources. That makes sense. What about you, Veronica? I wish I knew um, how much this topic is about raising awareness <laughs> of what it actually is. Uh, corporate social responsibility is an old concept, uh, but it has only recently started taking root and growing into something bigger and um, something very important to our society all over the world. Um, it originated in the 19th century, but really started taking hold uh, here in the US in the, in the 70s. And the story is very similar in other parts of the world. Um, the concept of using a part of your profit for doing something good and the society is not new but what most businesses are struggling to realize is that it's not just about what you donate to others it's also about how you treat your employees your suppliers your communities and the world around you and those conversations are not easy both internally in the companies and with the outside world um, and a, when i worked as a csr professional i often had to spread awareness of um, of the profession and why it is important in the same way as we uh, language professionals have to raise awareness of our profession and educate our clients and uh, there are a lot of parallels between these fields, which is why I think it's such a fascinating topic for translators. Um, and also we can really help make a difference here and help bridge that gap in understanding and help companies find common ground, um, help raise the bar when it comes to social responsibility practices. Wonderful. So I'd like to thank you again for joining me today to talk about your upcoming presentations which will be available during the upcoming ATA annual conference, number 61. So Nora, Veronica, Eugenia, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Maria. Thank you for tuning in to Slovo, a podcast of the ATA Slavic Languages Division. We hope you follow us on your favorite streaming platform. Until next time, I'm Maria Guzenko. Mm -hmm.